I am so happy to be the one who, when I come up here, you never know what's going to happen. <clears throat> Amen, Brother Dave. Well, good morning. Good morning, Renovation Church. I just love to say that. I know there's at least one person here, Phil, but does anybody else know what today is? Who said that? Had a boy, Jim. Annabelle? What is it besides Sunday? It is worship day, and it is the 50th day after Easter. So Brother Jim was right. It is Pentecost Sunday today. Ah, This is the day the Holy Spirit was poured out on believers in a way that never happened before and continues till today. Amen, for sure. Today, we celebrate the pouring out and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. He is here because we are here and he has determined, I'm going to live in you. According to the will of the Father, at least. It is also Memorial Day weekend, which means what? The Indy 500 is run today. And it is the time of year that we set aside and take a few minutes to honor those who have served in our armed forces. So if you have served in our armed forces in any way, please stand up. So with a sense of gratitude and humility and knowing that the freedoms we enjoy in this country today were purchased with the lives of people like you, people who were willing to give what Abraham Lincoln called the full measure of devotion, I thank you for your service. And I know it's a very, yes. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate that. Well, today's message is the third and last in our series on vulnerable souls. And it's titled Mourning and Grief. So if I make it through, you'll know the Lord is real. Um. I want you to be aware that these messages are not directed at a select few of us. Oh, yeah, you know what I didn't, especially children, right? Because if they sat here, they'd be overcome with mourning and grief as I, yeah. So go out there, have lots of fun. Woo-hoo. Thanks for flagging me down there. That was important. So uh, these messages are not directed to just a few of us who might be struggling. This is for everyone uh, because the enemy of our souls is able to take the struggles that we face and he is able to turn them into weapons that are designed to imprison us in our own weakness rather than allow us to go forth in the power of God. Each of us is vulnerable to and will eventually deal with the two realities that we've already spoken of, anxiety and discontent, or more accurately, impatient discontent. And today we'll be examining another 
reality that every one of us will eventually face or if we've already faced it once or twice, we will face again. Grief and mourning. I want to tell you right here that I am not an expert. My wife is. Debbie's been a trained grief counselor for a long time. And uh, though I wanted to learn a great deal from her and add it to today's message, uh, time and circumstances did not allow it. So I'll be going forth based on my observations of Scripture and my own reason and memory which we know are all starting to fail. I also want you to know that there is a wealth of information about grief out there. So if you deal with grief, there are resources beyond just what I'm going to tell you. So there's so much information out there, actually, that we could start a new series just on grief and mourning for maybe 10 or 20 Sundays and still not cover it. So today's the day. And it'll last as long as it lasts. Um, So what you're getting today then is a very select distillation of information. So I'm just, you know, taking all that stuff that I've heard and trying to recall and bringing it down to a focus. Um, It is more of a summary than a dissertation. Ah, well, dealing with emotional grief and uh, or dealing with the emotion of grief and navigating the process of mourning our losses, these are part of every person's life. What starts out as difficult and painful but common Uh, can quickly turn into a downward spiral. I mean, we can go around this thing emotionally, rehashing the same stuff. Uh, It could become a dangerous trap that could potentially keep us imprisoned for a long time in our grief, unable to move forward through life. And sometimes it causes us to become embittered against other people. It can cause us to withdraw from others. Grief can cause us to act out in ways that cause pain to others. We we are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savor, How can it be made useful again? You know, that's a pretty heavy concept right there. If we're the salt of the earth and grief can make us bland, how can we be made salty again? We need to pray about this before we go on. So um, please stand with me as we seek the Lord's presence and guidance. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift and the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, Jesus said that the Spirit would guide us into all the truth and bring to our memories the things that Jesus had said. And so, Father... I ask you to send your spirit in a way today that we haven't experienced in a while and bring to our memories the right things and lead us into the truth. Holy Spirit, your ministry is teaching and convicting and I ask you to teach us today and to convict us and convince us and move us in the direction that honors Christ and his sacrifice and reveals the 
glory of the Father. Amen. You may be seated. So I guess the first thing we should do is look at the passage that I've selected for today. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 or in your device or whatever you might have. Matthew chapter 5, you may be familiar with it already. It is the Sermon on the Mount. What you might not be familiar with is the role it played and the timing of it in Jesus' ministry. So we'll read it together, and uh, not the whole thing, it's too many chapters, Uh, but we'll read together, and uh, then I'll fill in a bit of the backstory. So uh, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1, and you know what? I'm going to fill in the backstory before we read it, Uh, because that way you'll be able to really get a better sense of what Jesus is actually telling his disciples. These words are too familiar for us to just look at them. We have to build a context. So just by the time the Sermon on the Mount came to be, Jesus had already spent most of his earthly ministry roaming around the northern extremities of Palestine. Uh, It might have been as little as one year, which is a long time, right? Uh, And it might have been that he was actually out there in the northern regions for as long as two years. Scripture's not really clear about that, uh, about how much time passed, but it is clear that Jesus spent a huge portion of his ministry with his disciples in this area, out on the fringes. Well, early in his ministry, actually, just after he was baptized uh, by John the Baptist, Jesus took up a message, and he preached that message for most of his earthly ministry. That message was, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. I know, you think that was John the Baptist, and you're right. But Jesus took up the exact same message and carried it on for at least half, if not two-thirds of his ministry. It's an important concept, and it was the message. Well, Jesus took that message up and then called people to follow him. We know that he went to the boats and, you know, Peter and Andrew said, come, right, Simon, Uh, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Uh, He called people to follow him, and what he did once they started to follow him was he healed the sick, all right? He, way up in the northern reaches, uh, cast out demons, right? Healed the lame, returned sight to the blind, or maybe for some, gave them sight for the first time in their lives. Even spent some time raising the dead, and being confronted by religious leaders. Then half or even two-thirds of the way through his ministry, Jesus identified the 12, and he set them apart as his 12 special guys. Well, almost immediately after he identified that, he, he changed the focus of his teaching toward the training of the 12. He tried to get them away from the crowds so he could spend time with them, but the crowds were persistent. He went across the lake. They ran around the lake to meet him. Um, Jesus took the 12 to a hillside, and he spoke directly to them, even though the crowd was gathered around. So I imagine it like this. The crowd is here. Jesus is about to speak to the crowd, and he goes, wait a minute. You 12, front row. This is for you. Everybody else can listen. So he changed his message at that point from repent for the kingdom is at hand to, well, let me read it. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, the disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. That could be translated humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. The pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he focuses. Blessed are you, you twelve. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven We need to keep these things together. They happened together. And sometimes we need to step back and maybe take a slightly different perspective than we ever have before just to see what we see. So what do we see here? Well, Jesus has been preaching nonstop for a long time saying, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. At this point, he begins to explain to his disciples the values of the kingdom. Right? Humility. Mourning. Peacemaking. All of these things that he just listed. He also started to indicate to them what living that way might mean. Because if you're a peacemaker in a violent world, people are going to oppose that. So, so you 12, these are the values of the kingdom. These are the virtues that I'm going to build into your life and you're going to struggle because of it. And... You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Glorify God in this way by living these things. His disciples have spent a year or more watching miracles occur at Jesus' command. So if they were sitting there before Jesus started speaking and thinking, hey, We're going to be groomed here to be the princes in charge, commanding the hosts of heaven when Messiah takes over. We could forgive them for that, couldn't we? Or at least understand it. But instead, Jesus tells them, be poor in spirit, mournful, humble, hungry for righteousness, rather than hungry for conquest. Be merciful, pure in heart, be peacemakers. And he warned them that they would be persecuted. Well, those are the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom that Jesus had been teaching is here. That's the character that they would have to develop and live out in face of persecution in order to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So it's with that in view that we have to explore verse 4 of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. So I have five observations about this whole thing here. The first one is that in this case, blessing is actually promised. Those things don't normally go together, right? I mean, we don't think of, oh, I'm so blessed to be grieving this hard. We don't think that way. Um, But yet, there's a promise. When you mourn, you'll be blessed. Second observation, God is the one who blesses. So mourn, be poor in spirit, be humble, be peacemakers, because God himself will make it worth it. Observation number three, believers are the ones who receive this blessing. It's not just everybody who goes out there in grief, who goes out mourning. It's believers. There's something special about believers. Now, these three things that I've pointed out so far, blessing is a promise, God's the one who does the blessing, and believers are the ones who receive the blessing. These three things, they apply to the last two messages as well, to dealing with anxiety and to dealing with discontent. But here's the one thing here that's specific to mourning. There's a promise. The blessing of God is comfort. Comfort. You mean like strata lounger? Easy boy? Nice recliner? Maybe power recliner? Adjustable headrest? Yeah. Ooh, what about the... Ah, no. Um, no, not comfort like that. Um, it's emotional comfort. You know, you'll be comforted in your spirit. By whom? By God. Why? He promised. Who receives it? Only believers. That's the blessing. Goal five, or observation number five. The goal here, the goal of God's promise, God's provision, obedient following, or at least allowing God to renovate. You see how I did that? And change lives. The goal is so that God can sprinkle salt and spread light on the world in a way and through people who bring glory to the Father. So all of these things are true and maybe even obvious, but not automatic. If we are to experience grief and come out the other side of it, as salt and light to the world, we must allow God to use that grief to transform us, to renovate us. Because we are stories Jesus is telling, or God is telling, about how Jesus makes all things new. If you ever heard that before, that's good. If you don't remember where it is, look above the coat rack on your way out the door. This is also where danger lives because we have to get through the grief in a specific way. And grief is such a powerful emotion that it has the power by itself to destroy and to enslave. Add to that the fact that the ancient enemy of our souls who is wise and powerful, or at least devious and powerful, can utilize our weakness and our grief together against us and against God. So that's where the danger lives. Grief has the power to destroy and enslave, but it also has the power to transform 
and set free. The devil will always attempt to hijack our grief. Let me say it again. The devil, the deceiver, the diabolical one, the enemy of our souls, will always attempt to hijack our grief in order to destroy us so that others will not be blessed. So as we navigate the emotion of grief through the process of mourning, there are certain pitfalls that we have to avoid. The first pitfall we need to avoid, and I'm going to highlight four. There are probably 4,000, but these four are really common, and they're common because that's where we're weakest. Four pitfalls to navigating the emotion of grief through the process of mourning is the temptation to avoid the grief or at least avoid dealing with it. Nowadays, they call it denial. We all float down denial from time to time. So how do we face that? I mean, we can easily say, no, I'm not grieving. All right? Leave me alone. Stay out of it. And we can even tell that to ourselves. No, this is, this is something. You know, I can deal with it. I'm okay. I'm strong. I can handle this. I got it. That is a certain way to be destroyed. Grief will always work itself out. Uh, one pastor I heard um, said, you'll either mourn or moan. And I think he's right. So what do we need to do? We need to face our grief instead of deny it. I mean, that's as easy, you know, and simple and straightforward as it comes, but it's not easy to do. We need to face our grief. To mourn means to reach inside, get it out, look within, get it out, Look at it, identify the truth about it, see what's there, and honestly address the way that our loss makes us feel. That's what mourning is. It's the process, getting it out, identifying it, dealing with it. For some, listen, in grief, for some people, that will be super dramatic. I mean, in some cultures, the first thing is wailing, right? Public crying, falling to the ground, dust and dirt in the air, right? That's, that's some cultures. I mean, for some people, it will be very dramatic. For others, it will not. But it doesn't matter. That's what we have to do, even if it's only emotionally and kind of spiritually. We need to get it out there. Tell God about it. I mean, that's what, in those cultures, that's what happens, right? The death of a loved one. There's wailing. I was going to do it, but I didn't want to scare anybody. Um, There's wailing. So, and that wailing is, I hurt. I hurt. I'm telling you, I hurt. And actually in those cultures, they have a thing called Shiva, which they do, which is friends, relatives, neighbors come and sit with you. And they hear your wailing. And they meet all the emotional or all the physical needs for seven days to give you a good start. Tell God about it. When you're hurting, when you've experienced a loss, when you're suffering grief, tell God about it. Curl up in his lap. That's what my wife likes to do. Rage at him. 
It's okay. Lament, cry, wail, weep, whatever it takes. Spend all the energy of your grief smashing against the rock of God's mercy, but be honest about it. The second pitfall we need to avoid is the temptation to replace grief with anger. That's substitution. Let me substitute anger in the place of grief. I'm feeling something. I don't like what I'm feeling. I'm going to get mad about it. And everybody around me is going to know about it. My anger. Be honest with yourself and with God. Be honest that you're tempted to become angry. If you're mad, tell him. But anger is easy, and it's destructive, and it's never the real issue. So here's my story, because this is my preferred method. Um, Actually, it used to be. Now I have a different preferred method, but 26 years ago, my dad passed away. And uh, things worked out, and if I were honest, I probably helped them work out in such a way that I dove into my, into my job so that for an extended period of time, I would go to work on Monday morning at 7 a.m. and work until Tuesday at noon when I, I couldn't stay awake anymore. I come home Tuesday, fall asleep, wake up on Wednesday morning, go to work at 7 o'clock and stay until Thursday at noon and go home and sleep and, and did this for a while. It even included Saturdays and Sundays after church working at home on the kitchen table. I abandoned my wife and children during that time. And pretty much the only thing they got from me was an angry response. So I was substituting and I was avoiding, maybe denying. Um, But it didn't last long, only two years. And... uh, Debbie reminded me of how it ended. At the end of two years, a guy I hadn't seen for a long time came to work and uh, said, we need to go to lunch, go to lunch with me. So I did. I went to lunch with him and uh, he sat there and told me all the things that he remembered about my dad, what my dad was like, how he influenced his life, that sort of thing. that was a very healing moment because it allowed me to see from a different perspective. So there's a key principle here. We need other people in this. We can't do it ourselves. <clears throat> and, and I was, you know, the, the pain was real, but I was avoiding. Um, And the anger that came out was devastating to the people around me, and it was not the real issue. So ask yourself, find out, tear it out and look at it and say, what is causing this anger? What's the root? It's not that I didn't deal with it well. It's that something hurt me, and I responded in anger. So ask, what is causing this anger? And again, be honest about it, but don't let it stop you from praying through and finding the truth buried under all that passion. It's there. Find it. Dig it out. Carry it to God. Offer it to him on the altar. Pick it up again and walk away with it if you must but continue to return with it until you can leave it and walk away. 
The third pitfall that we have to be careful of is the temptation to avoid healing and remain in grief. This is stagnation, and some people live there for decades. And it's tragic. How do we keep that from happening? Don't withdraw from family and friends and church. Don't. My observation over the years in dealing with people is that you are your own worst counselor. If you do this alone, you hear one voice, and you think it's you, but it's the voice behind you guiding you in the wrong direction. It is the enemy of your soul who wants you stuck there. You are your own worst counselor. You know, and, and, and do this, you know, don't go around from person to person looking for someone else who is just as stuck as you are to commiserate with you and share your grief. Or you will not, you see, that person will not encourage you to move. They'll encourage you to stay stuck. Misery loves company. Find those instead who encourage you to look forward and envision healing. You can't do it yourself. The enemy knows all the buttons to push. He'll keep you there, but someone who's hearing God's voice can help direct your gaze in a direction that will help you envision healing. You may not be able to look forward for some time, but... Don't avoid the ones who point that way anyway. There's a fourth pitfall we have to avoid. The temptation to blame others. This is misdirection. Blaming others for our loss or our pain causes us to drive a wedge between ourselves and that person. And that wedge could result in pain for them as well as for us. Or even, sometimes, if they're persistent in trying to help, we end up talking about them and slandering them. Yeah, that's, that's bad for both of us. See, you, you might even blame some unidentified other. What they did to me or some organization, you know. Hey, it's this impersonal force that I have to deal with that causes harm. No, that's not, the, that's not the cause. The cause of your grief is your loss. See, you, you might be tempted to blame someone in authority or maybe a process. It's not them. It's not what they did. It's how they did it. That's the source of my pain. No, it's your loss. It's your sense of loss. It could be a job that you lost. It could be your retirement that you lost. It could be a friend, a family member. It could be somebody who's close to you, moved away. There's all sorts of loss. Independence, freedom, health. It could be anything. But don't misdirect your grief and identify someone as the cause when the cause is your loss. See, the point is this. Blaming others keeps us from looking at the truth about ourselves and our pain and dealing with it. It's especially true when we blame God. 
it probably goes without saying. But there's nobody you want on your side more than God. Don't blame him and keep him at arm's length. See, the process of dealing with our grief is called mourning. What does it mean to mourn? Mourn is the process of looking our pain in the eye and identifying it, and identify it rightly, not according to our poorly adapted resources. Look it in the eye and identify it. Show it to others. This is where I hurt. This is what's going on. Allow them to speak into your life. Eventually, bring all that to God and ask him to take it and heal it. Or in the case of mourning, to comfort. Because that's the promise in Matthew 5, 4, right? Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. There will be scars. Don't get me wrong. Comfort does not mean we take away the pain. It does not mean that. There will be scars. Scars are the result of a healing process, and they are a reminder of what went on. See, God promised comfort. He did not promise that the hurt would go away. But when dealt with well, that is when the pain is dealt with well, when the loss is dealt with well, through grief and mourning, they will give way to renewed hope, even joy. That's what it means when Jesus said, blessed are. Blessed means happy, even joyful. And he told his disciples a little while later, um, you're going to, persecuted. So rejoice. (laughs) Okay, so what? Well, the book of Romans tells us that, by the way, don't tell this to a grieving person. All right, at least take your defensive boxing position before you do because they may swing at you. But the book of Romans nonetheless tells us that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So it's entirely possible, you know, that that when you say that, the person who is really in pain will want you to be in pain. Um, But you know what? That's even true of grief. Grief can be the passageway from where we were to where God is calling us, to his purpose for us. He uses grief to bless us and others, others who are called by him. Uh, Those who are called by him to join in his purpose of turning us into salt and light for a flavorless and dark world. Embrace what God is doing no matter how much it hurts. Take whatever time you need, but do not lose sight of God's goodness. Rage at him. Shake your fist in his face. That's probably a dangerous thing to say. But don't just do that. Trust him. You might not understand, and your rage and all your fist shaking and bravado might just be a way to express your weakness. He understands, he knows that we are dust. Yet he takes this dust, makes it salt and light for a lost and dying world. Mm.
His ways are past finding out. The second so what? <clears throat> Grief is a response to loss. There's a real loss that affects all of us. Yes, I said that, you know, grief is common to each of us, but there is a loss that every one of us experiences. Check this out because, now, check this out. Listen to what I'm saying because you probably never thought about it this way before. The loss that is common to all of us and is the granddaddy of all losses is the loss of Eden. Every Christian longs for the day, longs for the day when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the former things all passed away and he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. When he makes all things new, it will be regaining what was lost at the fall. Until then, we all live with the reality of what was lost. We all mourn because of the distance that sin has put between us and God. That's the granddaddy of them all. Grief in this life is a picture. It's a picture of what we lost when Adam fell. Mourning is also a picture. It is a picture of what it cost God to purchase our redemption. And the kingdom is a picture of the joy that comes from going through the process. There's no kingdom if Jesus didn't go through through the cross. And number three, don't let grief rob you of God's blessing and of becoming God's blessing to others. <sighs> wow. That's a perfect place to set this down and enter into communion. Because it is exactly the propitiation for our sin that we recall. Oh, that's, a, that's a big, you know, theological word that helps us distance ourselves from all the emotion that went on in that process. <clears throat> Jesus, in the upper room with his disciples, we don't often think of this when we take part in communion, but he said, I have longed to eat this meal with you. As often as you do it, remember me. Healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, restoring sight to the blind, causing lame people to walk, raising the dead. How can you forget that? As often as you do it, remember me. I'm pretty sure he was looking forward to the next several hours when he would be put on trial, humiliated, scorned, brought to the cross. Not as some technical theological term, but as 
the process of mourning through the grief that sin brought into the world. He is the healing of that. And at that meal, he took the bread and he broke it, tore it apart into several pieces. And he handed it to his disciples and said, take it, eat it. This is my body given for you. How much more do we need to know that he was referring to his crucifixion? At the end of the meal, he took the cup. He said, take it and drink of it. This cup, he said, is the new covenant in my blood. Not a covenant about obligations and sacrifices. A covenant about restoring fellowship. Let's pray and then let's enter into communion. So we do not practice closed communion. If you're not a member of this church, that's okay. You can still take communion, but only if you have a relationship to Jesus Christ that recognizes him as your crucified and resurrected Savior. Otherwise, just stay seated. It'll be fine. Um, Father, you are so wise and so good, and your ways are past finding out. We can't understand it but we rejoice in it and we only know it because you have told us and showed us and we have your word to look into, but also because the Holy Spirit has been poured out in our lives. It is in the power of that spirit. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that we thank you and that we determine now to enter into the healing that you bring to our loss and pain. Amen.